Hello, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Sorry for the extended period of radio silence. Uh, if you have been listening on Harrogate Community Radio, then you have been listening to a couple of carefully curated repeat episodes uh, selected by the great Andy Backhouse, who is the station manager here at HCR. If you have been listening to the podcast feed, then you have just had silence, apart from like a one-minute apology I did last week. But we are back now. Um, I'm not going to go into details about why I've not been here. I've had some family issues which are still ongoing, but I am back. A little bit more subdued than normal, perhaps. Um, And not had a lot of time to put this together. So here's the deal. This week is going to be me having a bit of a rant about all the things that have happened while I've been off the air. And um, next week is going to be the an interview that I did with the awesome Chloe Green of Thought Bubble. So this week's thing, um, the things I'm going to talk about, they're in no particular order. They're not in any kind of chronological order, I don't think. They're not in any kind of subject order. They are literally a bunch of things that I noted while I was busy doing something else. That I wanted to come back and talk about. So we're going to start with Doctor Who, and we're going to start with Doctor Who because I genuinely can't remember whether I've talked about this or not. I genuinely don't have time to go back over the more recent actual episodes that I did and listen to them again, and I've recorded so much stuff in preparation for episodes in over the last couple of weeks that I didn't get done, that I, I, I know I've talked about it, I can't remember if it went to where. So, if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. The wait for a new showrunner for Doctor Who is over. And it's an old showrunner for Doctor Who. Russell T Davies has been announced as the new showrunner to replace Chris Chibnall when Chris Chibnall departs at the end of the forthcoming series, which must be imminent, but I don't think we've got a release date for it yet. Now, lots of people are very happy about this and fair play to them. I mean, Russell T Davies is a very safe pair of hands with Doctor Who. He is the guy who brought it back in 2005 and essentially created the modern incarnation of the show. He wasn't perfect. I didn't like quite a lot of the way he wrote women. Uh, He is the person responsible for what happened to Donna. And he is the person who wrote the character of Martha Jones in a way that I personally found incredibly frustrating. But, you know... He writes good stuff. He was responsible for some brilliant, brilliant Doctor Who. But I'm not really that thrilled. Not because I'm sorry to see the back of Chibnall, although I do think Chibnall has been responsible for some of the best Doctor Who we've ever had. I also think he's been responsible for some of the worst Doctor Who we've ever had. And I think he vacillates too much. I think the swings are too jarring. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, I'm not going to be sorry to see the back of Chibnall. I am going to be sorry to see the back of Jodie Whittaker, who's also leaving Doctor Who. Very interested to see who we get as the 14th Doctor. But I, I, I would have liked more Jodie. I really, really would. But she's not staying and Russell T. Davis is taking over. So why am I not excited? Well, I'm not excited because for me... Doctor Who is a show that fundamentally is forever moving forwards. It's always doing something new. This is not new. This is old. Now, I I can see that it's not the same Russell T Davies who was making Doctor Who in 2005. He's done a lot since then. 
and maybe his style has matured, maybe he has things now that he would like to do with Doctor Who. I am assuming he left Doctor Who because he thought he'd done with it. Now perhaps he sees new possibilities. That could be good, but I would have liked a completely new showrunner. I've heard speculation on the awesome, awesome Verity podcast that what might be happening here is that Russell T Davis is taking over his production company is taking over part of this maybe he's coming in hit the reset button and then use use Doctor Who to train up some sort of assistant showrunners who might then step in and take over as a and that's how we get new and experienced people on Doctor Who with fresh voices maybe maybe he's in that's what he's into I quite like that idea uh, my only issue with that is that I think the new and interesting voices are already out there. But there we go. I think it's a slightly retrograde step. Doctor Who always proves me wrong. I'm really hoping it's going to prove me wrong again. So the only thing we wait for now is the announcement of who the next Doctor will be. And hmm, I'm, I've heard lots of speculation. There are lots of people I would love to play the Doctor. I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to leave it. And the reason I'm not going to speculate is because I always get it wrong. I didn't see Jodie Whittaker coming. I didn't see Peter Capaldi coming. Didn't see Matt Smith coming. Didn't see David Tennant coming. Didn't even see Christopher Eccleston coming. So, you know, speculating about who is going to be the next Doctor is fun, but I'm going to leave it for that. Now, speaking of people who might have been in the running to be shown of a Doctor Who, the American writer and producer J. Michael Straczynski was never really in the running if we're serious to be showrunner of Doctor Who when Chibnall left. But he did kind of put himself forward. He did make a bit of noise on social media about it. If you don't know who I'm talking about, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, you'll, many people will know him from his work in comics. He's done Spider-Man. He's done a lot of other stuff. He had a creator-owned series called Rising Stars over at Image for a while. He also has done a lot of TV shows, foremost of which was what I consider to be the science fiction masterpiece of 90s television, and that is Babylon 5, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. You're simply wrong. B5 was not perfect. It was hugely ambitious. It was planned as a five-year television novel, basically. It tackled big themes. It tackled um, huge, huge concepts and ideas. It fell down a lot. It wasn't always perfect. There are some genuinely shocking episodes, and some of the dialogue was utterly utterly terrible but some amazing performances some of the best characters in science fiction were in that show um, some amazing actors who turned out the best work of their careers sadly many of them no longer with us um and that's news about babylon 5 finished in the i forget which year it finished it finished in the 90s but it dominated my life for quite a bit in the 90s uh, me and my best friend, who was at that time living in London, she actually kind of still does, We would. It was, it was on Channel 4 on a Tuesday night. Our Wednesday mornings were ringing each other to talk about the previous night's show. That's how into it we were. We would talk about it for hours. God, I was obsessed. Still love it. And reliving it now, because I have discovered that all five seasons are available for free on IMDb TV which is viewable through Amazon Prime. So if you have a Prime account, 
Please don't use it to buy things. Please, please shop local. But use it for watching TV all your life. And Babylon 5 is there every single episode. They've made one choice that I don't like. Um, what you'll start with if you like click season one, episode one, it will start you with the TV movie in the beginning, which was made to be the like the official start of Babylon 5. It was made, I think, between seasons two and three. Um, now, the reason I don't like that they start with that, it's a great TV movie, get me wrong, and you should watch it at some point, but it tells you, it starts with the character of Londo Malari, who starts off as a sort of comedic comic relief character and becomes increasingly dark as the series goes on. It starts with him in the future, looking back, telling a story to some children about what Babylon 5 was and what happened. And it's kind of a bit of a spoiler for how things go wrong in the show for the characters. I would have preferred if they'd started it with the original pilot, which is called In the Beginning. Now, I understand why they didn't. The, the original pilot, I don't think, was shown on Channel 4. Um, if it was, it was certainly shown long after Babylon 5 was a thing. It's a little bit different. We've got different actors in some of the roles. We've got very different choices for makeup. The costumes are a little different. It doesn't look like an episode of Babylon 5, but you can see the roots of what we got in the end. And you can start by watching in the beginning. It's available as a bonus episode, but you have to make the effort to physically select that. I think you should. So if you're going to watch Babylon 5 uh, on Amazon Prime, I recommend doing that. And I do recommend you watch Babylon 5. It's not dated brilliantly. Um, some of the special effects... The special effects are... 100% CGI, and in the 90s that was groundbreaking, and in the 90s they looked amazing, because we hadn't seen anything better. The special effects now look very clunky. They're never going to get redone. It's like watching a black and white TV show. you just got to accept it, live with it, dive into it, and revel in it, and see it as a product of its time. But that's not actually why I'm telling you about Balloon 5. I mean, I was really excited to find that I could watch it all. I do own the whole thing on DVD, but who knows where that DVD collection is these days. So it's really nice to have it on streaming. Um, now, I'm telling you about it because it's coming back, in a way. Again, J. Michael Straczynski has been very vocal on social media. He's bringing a reboot of the show back to television. Uh, I think he's working with AMC. Now, more than that, I cannot say. He is saying it's a reboot and not a continuation, and if you watch all the way to the end of season five, you'll understand why a continuation of Babylon 5 is difficult. He did actually try in the 90s a couple of spin-offs. There was a show called Crusade, which was set after the events of Babylon 5. Uh, lasted about six episodes, didn't really work. And there was a show called Legend of the Rangers, uh, which again spins out a particular group of characters from Babylon 5 into their own show, and I've never seen it. I've never been able to find it anywhere. Uh, it didn't clearly catch on. So, it's definitely going to be a reboot. Characters, same characters, recast. Obviously, a lot of the people who played the characters originally are no longer with us, sadly. And the ones that are still with us are, you know, 25 years older than they were. So, I have seen mutterings on social media from people who are in that cast, people like Claudia Christian, um, that they've been approached to see if they would like to be in the reboot. So I'm liking that. Uh, 
Battlestar Galactica did that famously with David Hatch. Um, so, you know, there's, I'm quite excited. There's quite a few people in the Babylon 5 fan community who are sort of saying, well, the original's perfect, so why change it? And again, I would point you at Battlestar Galactica. I loved the original Battlestar Galactica show. I really did. It was great. But then they remade it and it was better. So that could happen here, is what I'm saying. And if it doesn't, we'll always have the original. They're not killing my childhood. It's fine. And they couldn't anyway, because I wasn't a child of the 90s, because I'm old. So that's all of that. Now, what else has happened while I've been away? Well, first things first, that lawsuit's been settled. Scarlett Johansson and Disney have settled the Black Widow lawsuit over how much Scarlett Johansson is or is not going to get paid. And do you know what? Of course they have. I am, frankly, completely astonished that this ever got anywhere near an actual courtroom. Because the solution was so obvious, it was really obvious they were going to do what they've actually done, which is Disney have paid a big chunk of cash to Scarlett Johansson, and she said, thank you very much, and it's over. Now, Disney could have done that straight away. I'm astonished they didn't. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, or you've forgotten about it because this was resolved a couple of weeks ago, essentially, Scott Johansson signed a deal with, with, well, with Marvel, I presume, but let's be honest, it's Disney. Um, she signed a deal to be in Black Widow, which gave her a percentage of the film's box office. And then 2020 and 2021 happened, and the film got pushed back, and it wasn't released, and it wasn't released, and it wasn't released, and then it was released. But it was released into a world where lots of people were still not going to theatres, where a lot of theatres were still closed. And Disney also put it onto Disney Plus as a premium thing. So if you had Disney Plus, you could pay yet more money and have the option to stream Black Widow while it was still in theatres. Now, Johansson's deal didn't allow her any of that premium money for streaming. She just got what was paid at the box office at theatres. And she argued, and I think reasonably, that by releasing the thing on streaming at the same time as it was in theatres, that was going to make, particularly in the environment that we were in, that was going to make people stream instead of going to the theatre. So box office revenues would be down because of Disney's actions and she would lose money and that wasn't fair. Seems to me all they ever had to do was say, yeah, we understand that's not in your contract. We understand we don't actually have to do anything about this, but we recognise the unfairness. And what we're going to do is give you the same percentage of the download money as you would have got if they'd gone to the box office. Now, I'm fairly sure they've probably given her a slightly smaller check than that would have generated. I actually don't know. But why didn't they just do that in the first place? You know, the whole thing could have been sorted out with one conversation. It's like, yeah, sorry, we didn't see this coming. Of course we didn't. But uh, yeah, you've got a point. Here's, how, here's what we're going to do about it. So both parties have said they look, you know, they've enjoyed their working relationship and they look forward to working together again. Not sure how serious either of them are about that. Although I do note that Scarlett Johansson is a working actress. I presume she would like to star in big movies again. And honestly, these days, if you want to star in big movies, 
there aren't many games in town and Disney is probably the biggest so she probably is going to want to work in a movie that ultimately tracks back to Disney and do you know what Disney's in the business of I was going to say Disney's in the, Disney's in the business of making movies it isn't uh, as a friend of mine often says Disney is not in the business of making movies it's in the business of making money and Scarlett Johansson is good box office okay she's, she's a big star she may be one of the biggest female stars in Hollywood at the moment. I'm fairly sure Disney are going to want to put her on their bill again because people will pay to watch her and that's what Disney want. So they do kind of need each other. And this whole little flap, just a bit dumb, I thought. Not a big fan of it. So I'm glad it's resolved. Uh, so moving on to things that people might like to do in the future. It has been announced a couple of weeks ago again that Henry Cavill would be very keen to speak to the James Bond producers about a future role. Yeah, I know. In other news, the sky is blue, grass is almost always green, and um, the sea's quite wet. Of course, Henry Cavill would love to talk to James Bond producers about a future role. Pretty sure he'd quite like to be Bond. I'm pretty sure he'd make quite a good one, actually. Um, and even if he wasn't going to be Bond... It would be a great twist, I think, to take Superman and make him a villain in a Bond movie. That would be awesome. So I'm up for either of those things. Um, and, you know, links in the show notes and all of that. But it is a bit of a non-story because he's not actually talking to the Bond producers. So what's the story here? There isn't one. British actor would quite like to play Bond. Show me a British actor that wouldn't. Uh, and so we move on to more good news from marvel really um it was agatha all along if you watched wandavision on disney plus you will have seen katherine hahn as uh, agatha harkness steal every single scene that she was in um played by katherine hahn just brilliantly um she was easily the best thing on that show, and everything about that show was pretty good. So that is high praise indeed. Well, now Han is going to reprise the role of Agatha Harkness because they're giving her her own spin-off. Um, described as a dark comedy, um, they're keeping all the important information under wraps. Uh, it's going to be written by uh, Jack Schaefer, who was... Um, the head writer on WandaVision. Uh, he's going to be executive producing this as well. It's not confirmed, but looking at the the response it's got from fans and such like, I'd be astonished if this didn't happen. So uh, I'm, I'm quite excited. Uh, I, I The fact that Catherine Hahn isn't really talking about it makes me think that something is happening and she's just not greenlit to say anything yet so i'm pretty keen on this and i'm pretty sure that we might actually get it so that's exciting looking forward to that but there's nothing more to say really because there isn't anything to say we don't know it yet um two good comic stories coming out from image that are exciting me a little bit and uh, do you know what Let's get the big one out of the way, first of all. Saga is back in January. 
I'm going to repeat that. Saga is back in January. Now, if you love comics, you already know that, to be honest. That was announced again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is what happened when I go AWOL for a bit. All the exciting stuff happens and I'm not here to report it. But if you love comics, you also know why Saga coming back is such a big deal. If you're not familiar with comics, let me explain. Saga is a huge, ambitious, sprawling space opera. It's a love story. It's a war story. It's a story about people. It's a story about what a parent will do to protect their child. It's a story about love. It's a story about hate. And to actually explain the plot is actually really difficult because the plot, if you just explain the plot, sounds a bit hackneyed. What you've basically got is what um, former Destination Venus uh, retail assistant Ian used to describe as Romeo and Juliet smashes into Star Wars with a dirty mind and a filthy mouth. And that's pretty much it. Lots of swearing. Definitely not for kids, this book. But basically the two characters... The two main characters are a married couple, husband and wife. They met when he was a prisoner of war and she was his prison guard. They fell in love, she busted him out, they ran away. Now, both sides from the war are in pursuit of them because they have a child together. And that child, Hazel, according to both sides in the war, shouldn't exist. So, both sides of the galaxy want them dead. And they've been on the run since issue one. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the brilliance of this book. Written by Brian K. Vaughan, illustrated by Fiona Staples, the artwork is exquisite. It's such a beautiful, beautiful art style that Fiona Staples has. And the writing by Brian K. Vaughan is wonderfully augmented by this art, which is so expressive. Um, you know, the, the characters speak not just in words, but with their expressions and their body language. And that's really hard to do in a comic. Fiona Staples nails it. Brian K. Vaughan completely nails the writing. The dialogue is sharp. It's snappy. Uh, characters all have their own distinct voices. Nobody sounds like it's the author talking through them. And he takes you to places you would not expect a comic to go. The emotion and the investment that you have in the characters is immense. And once you're sucked into it, you really care when bad things happen to these characters. And boy, do bad things happen to these characters. So it ran for 54 issues over a number of years. And basically what it did for a long time was it would do six months on and six months off. So you'd get a six-issue story arc or so, um, and then there'd be a break of about six months, and then they'd be back with another story arc. Then they went on hiatus for what they said would be about 18 months. They said, look, we finished this story arc. It ended on a huge cliffhanger. And they said, look, this is it for now. We are coming back. There will be more saga. But we've got to go away and do some other stuff. And we've got to spend some time working on the next few arcs. So we're going away for about 18 months. We'll see you in a bit. 
And then they stayed gone. And they stayed gone. And they stayed gone. They've been gone for a little bit over three years, twice as long as they said they would be. And we were beginning to wonder, is Saga ever coming back? Are they going to leave us hanging? Well, they're not. It has been announced. Saga issue 55 hits the stores in January. You can pre-order it now. Uh, I recommend you do. Uh, the first issue of Saga now sells for quite a lot of money. And uh, you don't want to miss the first issue, what well, is effectively the first issue, of the second half. Uh, Brian K. Vaughan has said that Saga is going to run for 108 issues. So this is the start, literally, of the second half of the saga. So if you want to know what happens to Alana and Marco and Hazel and all the rest, January is when we find out what happens after what happened at the end of issue 54. I can't wait. And it looks as though 2022 is going to be a good year for stuff that I like coming back in comics. Because not only are we getting Saga back, we're also getting more Astro City. Now, again, Astro City is something that if you know comics, you know. And if you don't know comics, you've never heard of. What Astro City is, is a genius, absolute genius plot device, essentially. Kurt Busiek created Astro City as a comic about a city where superheroes are just normal. Okay, no one's surprised by superheroes. There are loads of them all doing their superhero thing. Now, he uses Astro City as a backdrop against which to tell whatever kind of superhero story he wants. Because, because there are so many superheroes in Astro City, you can't possibly know them all. So he just creates a new one for each story arc and just drops it on us like we know all about it, which is how superhero comics have worked in other universes forever. You know, they don't bother to introduce Thor every time Thor drops into a, uh, an, an issue of Spider-Man. It's just assumed you know who he is. Well, what if he didn't? That's how Astro City works. You don't have to worry about the backstory or the continuity of anything. It's just a story to enjoy in its own right. Sometimes characters from, from previous story arcs come back. But again, it doesn't matter if you didn't read that story arc. And there are all kinds of ways that that could be terrible. But Kurt Busiek is an amazing writer. Uh, he's best known outside of his creator-owned stuff. And Astro City is a creator-owned book. It's, you know, he owns the rights to everything. Uh, he wrote uh, something called Marvels for Marvel Comics back in the 90s and absolutely redefined what a Marvel comic book could be with that. It was illustrated by Alex Ross. It was a big deal. It was republished a couple of years ago with annotations. Uh, and I recommend you, find, you seek it out if you haven't um, read it because it's great. Buziak is what, what I'm saying. Buziak is an amazing writer. And I've always loved Astro City. It's a, an odd book. It's been published by several different people. It was published by DC Vertigo for a while. I think it's been with Image before. It's coming back with Image. Uh, I think it, I think Dark Horse had it for a bit. You know, it, it bounces about all over the place. But it remains consistently brilliant. Some of the most original superhero stories you will ever read. And they're all just like literal throwaway things. Um, he did an arc 
about a super team made up of superheroes' pets. And it worked. That's how good it is. So yeah, really excited for that too. 2022 could be a great year in comics with um, Saga coming back in January. I think Astro City hits the shelves in March. Honestly, after the last couple of years, it's just nice to have something to look forward to, isn't it? Okay, now, back to Marvel. You see, this is what I meant about things not being any particular order. If I'd had the time to organise all of this properly, I would have done all the Marvel stuff in one go and, and stuff. I, I, I am separating the like the, the geeky showbiz news from the geeky science news. I'm at least doing that. Uh, but we are going to bounce back to Marvel now because there's been what is, for me, genuinely quite an exciting announcement for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I think it's a bit late. I would have liked this announcement uh, several years ago, and I would have liked this character to have appeared in Avengers Endgame because he just should have. Uh, what am I talking about? They have cast Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Um, it's an actor who I don't think I've come across before. Um, he's a guy called Will Poulter. And I genuinely don't think I've ever seen him in anything. If I have, he didn't make much of an impression on me. Uh, because I, I don't recognise him at all. Um, apparently he was in the... The Revenant and Detroit, and on TV he's in the Underground Railroad, which apparently is on Amazon. Um, I haven't seen any of those things, so that explains why I don't recognise him. He's, but he's playing Adam Warlock. That's my headline. Who is Adam Warlock? Well, if you don't, again, read comics, you won't know. But if you saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, he almost turns up. At the end. Um, at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, um, Aisha, uh, the character Aisha, um, says that she's created the perfect person to destroy the Guardians once and for all. Um, in a cocoon is all we see. This cocoon. Now, anyone who's ever read Marvel Comics recognises that cocoon as the cocoon from which Adam Warlock burst forth in the 70s when Warlock was created. Now, Adam Warlock is a brilliant character, in my view. One of my favourite, one of the very first Marvel characters I read in the pages of the UK Star Wars Weekly uh, back in the mid-80s. He's a cosmic character. He has golden skin. He is incredibly powerful, incredibly strong. Uh, he can fly, he can travel through space, he can do all of that stuff. But what made me frustrated that we hadn't had him in the Marvel Cinematic Universe already is the fact that Adam Warlock was critical to the comics version of the Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity War series that ran in the late 80s, early 90s, and which were largely... You know, the, the sort of springboard for the Avengers movies and the Tesseract and all of that. Um, we first came across what became the Infinity Stones with Adam Warlock. He wore the Soul Gem on his head and he used it almost like a ray gun, really. He would zap people with it in fights and 
they would apparently die. We learned later, because it was retconned, um, that what he was actually doing was absor the soul gem was actually uh, actually absorbing people's souls. And those souls lived on inside the gem in a sort of parallel universe that existed inside the gem. Uh, and, and then later, it was decided that this soul gem was one of the infinity gems that Thanos was looking for. And it was a whole thing. And so from the very first moment we saw Thanos say, fine, I'll do it myself. At the end credits, at the end of one of the, I forget even which Marvel movie it was. Um, I was thinking, oh, we're going to see Adam Warlock. We're going to see Adam Warlock. And then we never did, and we never did, and we never did. And then we got that little teaser at the end of Guardians 2, and then nothing. And the Infinity War came and went. Endgame came and went. The Infinity Gauntlet happened. Still no Adam Warlock. I was furious. So now I'm fascinated to see what they do with the character in the movies. So, yeah, again, really, really, really excited. And I think I'm excited for the other bit of sort of Disney Plus Marvel news as well. Um, Dave Greenlit, a, a series called American Born Chinese. Um, it's going straight to series. Uh, it's an action comedy series based on a graphic novel uh, by... Jean Liung Yang, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering the Chinese pronunciation there, uh, which I haven't read. It came out in 2006. Um, I'm going to try and track it down because it sounds really interesting. Actually, I do love a good action comedy. Um, it's going to be written and executive produced by um, Kelvin Yu and his brother Charles Yu. Um, Kelvin Yu exec executive produces Bob's Burgers, which again is a show I've never seen but I know is popular. His brother Charles uh, has been involved in Westworld, which I also haven't seen. Um, and there's a whole bunch of... I've linked in the show notes to all the boring um, who's producing it stuff. Um, but the big names, big, big names. Uh, the story itself is the story of uh, Jin Wang. Average teenager juggling his high school and social life, like so many other Disney movies and shows. Uh, but of course, he's juggling his high school life with his home life. And as an immigrant, that's often a conflict. Um, and then he meets a new foreign student on the first day of the school year. Even more worlds start to collide as Jin gets caught up in a battle with China, gods from Chinese mythology. And it sounds great. And like all things like this. It, it's going to be exploring not just the, the characters, but issues of culture, family, identity, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think this is the kind of thing we need more of. Because I keep banging on about this on the show, but representation really is important. And there has been very little representation of Asian and Pacific Islander Americans. And there's been not really that much representation of British Chinese either. So it would be good, I think, to have more representation in shows that have good budgets, are made by people who know what they're doing 
and shows that that shows that will be a hit with all audiences just because they're good so i wish you well i'm quite excited to i'm quite excited to read the graphic novel which completely went underneath my radar in 2006 when it came out i was busy with other things in 2006 but even so um so i'm excited to read that because i really like the premise and uh I'm really excited by the, the idea of the show. I mean, clearly they could mess it up. Of course they could. But it's a it's a good bunch of folks. I'm hoping they won't. Anyway, it's time, I think, to move on a little bit. Uh, and uh, look, I'm putting this together in a rush, but I still love a good jingle. So... Or, should I say... A final frontier. Because it's finally happened in a move guaranteed to generate more positive publicity than you could possibly imagine, Jeff Bezos has sent William Shatner, Captain James Tiberius Kirk himself. To space. Sort of, if you count going above the common line, going into space. And I'm so genuinely moved by it, actually. I mean, you know, if you've been listening to the show, you know my opinion of Jeff Bezos. It's not very high. And you know my opinion of his ridiculously phallic suborbital rocket. That's not very high either. No, this is rocket. <laughs> um, but he's done it twice now. He sent people to space who I'm really happy to have seen there. He sent Wally Funk, who really should have been part of the Mercury program. She was utterly robbed. I understand why she wasn't. Um, there were all kinds of reasons why she wasn't. Many of them were to do with misogyny, but many of them weren't. And, you know, I'm just so pleased that she got her ride in the end. And honestly, the experience of flying a Blue Origin spacecraft, one of the new Shepard capsules, is very much like a Mercury astronaut would have had. You go up, you come straight back down again. That's what Alan Shepard did. And that's probably what Ollie Funk would have done. She might have got to do a couple of orbits. The difference, of course, is that the um, Blue, Blue Origin spacecraft that fly for Bezos's company much more comfortable than a Mercury capsule, much bigger than a Mercury capsule. Uh, the astronauts in the Mercury program used to joke that the capsule was not so much, you didn't so much sit in it as wear it. Um, and so you're yeah, really pleased to see Wally Funk get up there. And now William Shatner. And this is important to me for several reasons. First of all, it's William Shatner. Now, I know as a person, he can be a bit problematic. He's very blunt. He holds some problematic opinions, I think it's fair to say. He's behaved in some problematic ways, but he's Captain Kirk. He's also 90, which makes him the oldest person ever to fly above the Kármán line. Now, you'll notice I'm not saying going to space because I don't want to have the argument about where space starts. Uh, the American FAA say it's now higher than the Kármán line. The rest of the world still kind of using the Kármán line. You, you, you sort of have to draw a line somewhere, as far as I'm concerned. 
he's crossed it. And that's great. It's great to have somebody that old fly in space because it really does demonstrate that anyone can do this. Well, anyone who's got access to flipping great wadges of cash, at least. Um, but it's, it's more than that. It's his reaction when he came back down again. I'm going to try and put some links in the show notes. I'm, I'm not going to reproduce it here because I don't think I... Well, first of all, I don't think I could cut it short enough that I'd get away with copyright. Uh, but also, I, I don't think I could do it justice to edit it down, really. It was clearly a profound experience that he had. Um, I heard him on the news. I was driving back up to Harrogate from Cambridge. And, you know, I'd not... The family stuff that's going on with me is going on in Cambridge. It's very bad. It's very emotional. Um, and, you know, so I was in a bit of a bit of an emotional place, I suppose. But to hear William Shatner's reaction and the emotion that he clearly felt, having had the experience of floating in microgravity for not very long, but having that experience and looking down and seeing Earth from space. Not from far up in space, but still, seeing the Earth from space, it clearly had affected him very, very much. And I found it incredibly moving. Uh, so, as I say, links in the show notes, I hope. I mean, I'm saying links in the show notes. I haven't written the show notes yet. Um, and the way my time management is going this week, the show notes may be a little late, but I will make a very serious effort to get them up there in time for this show going out and in time for this show landing on the podcast feed. Um, do go and have a look. It's it's one of the most moving things I've ever seen. I've heard some cynical people say, oh, you know, he's just acting. You know, he's he's a friend of Jeff Bezos. Or, you know, Bezos has acted, asked him to do this so that it, you know, gets publicity. Now, I'm cynical enough to believe that. I really am. But I actually don't think that William Shatner's that good an actor. Which means, yeah, I think his reaction was completely genuine. So go and have a look and see how space can change people's lives. And then we can have a chat about whether it's worth doing or not. Short answer, it is. Longer answer, we should probably be doing some other stuff as well. Um, I feel that particularly strongly at the moment, in fact. But yeah, congratulations, Bill Shatner. I've not always been your biggest fan, but I'm really pleased for you, mate. Really pleased. Like William Shatner is going to listen to this and be happy that I'm pleased. But hey, there you go. Moving on. Now, I don't often do podcast recommendations in the space segment, but there's a reason I'm doing it now. One of my favourite podcasts that I listen to at the moment is a comedy podcast called uh, Dumb People Town. Uh, it features three comedians, three American comedians, and a guest talking about actual stories from the news about really, really stupid things that people have actually and they talk about the, the, the thing and they make fun of everybody involved and, you know, they make fun of themselves and each other. And it's, it's, a, it's just a, an absolute zero brain laugh, which I sometimes really enjoy. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because a huge proportion of the stories they tell start with the words, a Florida man, because some crazy stuff happens in Florida. It really, really does. Now, as a geek, I actually know the reason why so much weird stuff and craziness is reported from the state of Florida, but it's not relevant here, so I'm just going to gloss over that. 
The reason I'm telling you that is because I finally have a story that starts a Florida man. And I really like it. So basically, a Florida man has returned a missing NASA moon rock he bought at a garage sale. He's quoted as saying, I can't even tell you how long I owned it for. This thing's been missing for a while. It was gifted to the state of Louisiana by Richard Nixon, who was at the time president of the United States. And this happened a lot. You know, I think probably most states got a bit of moon rock to keep. Um, so the guy in question has found this piece of moon rock, actual moon rock, sitting in a box at the back of a wardrobe somewhere in his in his home. Um, he reckons he must have bought it at a garage sale within the last 15 or so years, and he had no idea what it was. Um, he doesn't know how much he paid for it. Um, basically, it mounted on a plaque. And what this guy does is he buys plaques um, because then he takes the wood from the plaques and uh, sends it to a guy he knows that does gun stocks and has sort of stocks for his guns made up because obviously Florida, the guy has a gun collection. Um, nobody has any idea how the lunar sample from Apollo 17, because they know that's where it's from. Um, they have no idea how that ended up in a garage sale. But what it does do is highlight a real problem that we have. I mean, at the moment, moon rock on Earth is a fairly finite resource. Okay, there were only six missions that landed on the moon. And none of them brought that much moon rock back. Loads of it, loads of it is missing. Okay. Um, most of it is sealed away in a vault at NASA and they occasionally take bits out and do experiments on it and that's great but Richard Nixon gave away nearly 200 samples of moon rock to the various 50 United States and the terrorist uh, terrorists what am I talking about the territories of the United States places like um, Puerto Rico and places like that uh, and obviously some also was given to friendly foreign governments and indeed hostile foreign governments just to say, hey, we've been to the moon, you haven't. Um, almost all of it's gone missing. Almost all of it. Some of it has been reported stolen, but most of it has just vanished. This piece um, was given back to the Louisiana State Museum, um, which apparently is where it belongs. Um, how did it get from Louisiana to Florida? How did it get out of the museum in the first place? Who's looking after this stuff? Um, it's just bizarre. And you've got to hope that people will now pay a bit more attention. Because to me, a piece of moon rock is... It's a big deal. I mean, I've, I've held moon rock in my hand. And... It's a, it's a weird thing to know that you're holding something, not only that came from another celestial body, 
but that in some ways it's a connection to the astronaut who picked that up by hand and carried it home. It's, it just astonishes me. It just blows my mind that so much of this stuff has been lost. It's ridiculous. Seriously, people, pay more attention and take better care of your stuff. Gee. Anyway, this piece has been found. It's back where it belongs in the State Museum of Louisiana. Long may it remain there. People of Louisiana, as I say, take care of your stuff. Okay, that's pretty much the end of... Uh, of the space. I mean, it's not the end of the space news. So much more stuff has happened in space, but that's all the space news I've had time to read in the last two weeks. So we're going to call it there. So that's it for space, a final frontier. Okay. I might get to some comics recommendations before the end, but first, one final showbiz story which I can't believe I forgot to put in earlier on. And as I say, I'm doing this in a rush, so I'm not going to spend time going back and editing it in where it should be. I'm just going to tell you about it now, because it's at once both really sweet and also just a little bit... patronising is not the right word, but it's something that I kind of think the guy in question needs to get over a little bit. Basically, George Clooney refuses to let his wife watch Batman and Robin because, this is a quote, I want her to have respect for me. Um, now, Clooney has long said that he destroyed the Batman franchise with Batman and Robin, and he kind of did. Um... This came up because there was a uh, a bit of a, a publicity thing recently. Um, obviously, lots of people have been asked to go back and reprise their versions of Batman for uh, the Flash movie. You know, Ben Affleck's going back, although let's be honest, Ben Affleck barely left. Um, Michael Keaton is going back. Um, Clooney was asked, and uh, he said, no, they didn't ask me. When you destroy the, a franchise the way I did, usually they look the other way when the Flash comes by. Which is fair. And look, Batman and Robin is, I think, an objectively terrible film. Okay, I know there are people who disagree with me. Uh, comics writer Magdalene Visaggio famously thinks, or at least famously says, she thinks, that it's a masterpiece. And, you know, maybe she's seeing something in it that I'm not. I hated that movie when I first saw it in 1997. I still do now. I've watched it a few times because I am a geek. And sometimes you hate yourself enough to sit through Batman and Robin. It doesn't get better on repeated viewings. Um, but you know what? None, none of the things that are wrong with that movie are Clooney's fault. The costumes are awful. Uh, the directing is terrible. Uh, Joel Schumacher... Joel Schumacher clearly made the film he wanted to see. I don't think it's the film anybody else did. Let's just say that. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't work as Mr. Freeze. He's only in the movie because he was a massive star. Um, 
that played great in it. Uh, he's always been clear. He hates the movie. Um, but it's actually got one really good scene in it. Uh, which, if you if you remember the movie, I mean, I'm not going to suggest you go and watch the movie just to watch this scene. In fact, I'm going to suggest you don't go and watch the movie just to watch this scene. Just take my word for it. There's a scene in the movie where Alfred, played by Michael Goff, brilliantly played by Michael Goff, who played Alfred in all of those early Batman movies, all the way from Batman right the way through to Batman and Robin. Um, Alfred's dying. Uh, I think he's been poisoned by poison ivy. I forget. It's not like there's a plot. Um, and there's a scene between him as he lies gravely ill and Bruce Wayne played by George Clooney and it's a scene of such heart and tenderness and the scene ends with Clooney just putting his hand I think on I think on Goff's shoulder and he just looks him in the eye and says I love you, old man. And it's such a powerful father and son moment that I'm actually getting emotional right now talking about it, although I'm in a bit of a fragile emotional state right now. Um, it, it's so beautifully acted. You, you see the brilliance and the range that Clooney has as an actor, which you don't get to see very often. He mostly just plays George Clooney, if we're honest. And playing against such a great actor as Michael Goff, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene that deserves to be in a better movie than Batman and Robin. It really does. In fact, for me, that scene kind of shows you what the movie was supposed to be before the studio got in and insisted they had yet another toy and before the production designers designed the sets that they designed and the costume designers designed the costumes they designed to be so garish and brash and bright. Um, this could have been a movie. That scene shows this could have been a movie with real heart, real soul. And for that reason, I sort of wish Clooney would get over it and say, yeah, look, do you know what? I was in a terrible movie, but I was great in it because he was when he was allowed to be. And I hope that at some point, he lets he encourages because let's be honest, I, I don't think George Clooney's in a position to to prevent his wife from seeing this movie. She wants to see it. Uh, Amal Clooney is a brilliant woman and an absolute force for good in her work as a human rights lawyer. And uh, do you know what? I think if she wants to watch Batman and Robin, she can. But at some point, I hope he encourages her to do so, so that she can see that scene and see George Clooney being the shining beacon of brilliance in what is otherwise a bit of a mess. It is a little story that I found I found a little bit touching. That, you know, George Clooney, the George Clooney, is still a little bit insecure about what his wife might think of him. Hope for us all, guys. There is hope for us all. Okay, we're coming close to the hour. It's nearly time to wrap it up. But before I do, there are a couple of comics. Actually, there are three comics that I really want to bring to your attention. Available now at Destination Venus, online at all other good comic shops, and indeed in person at all other good comic shops if you happen to live near one that's nearer than Destie's. The first thing I want to, I want to talk about 
is the latest iteration of Red Sonia. Red Sonia has been around in comics for a long time. She's not originally a comics character. Uh, she's normally seen uh, in a chainmail bikini and not much else. And, you know, she's a Conan-style barbarian woman, except she's a woman, so instead of being muscular, she's, well, you know, stacked. And there are some really good Red Sonja comics runs out there. Gail Simone did a brilliant one a few years ago. I've never really been into it. I don't like chainmail bikinis. I think they're ridiculous, and they set the wrong tone. For me. That's your thing. You do you. This latest series of Red Sonja, though, we're on issue two at the moment. They put her in trousers. And it's brilliant. It changes the whole dynamic of the book. Uh, it's written by the Italian writer Mirko Andolfo, uh, who I've raved about on the show before. Uh, I, I wish she was drawing it because her artwork is exquisite, but her writing is also brilliant. Uh, it's a great book. I commend it to you. Uh, issue one is still available. Issue two is out now. It's got some real heart, and I'm really interested to see where it's going. It's looking at an aspect of Red Sonja that I don't think we've seen before. Second series I want to recommend to you is called Almost American. Uh, it's by Ron Mars um, and uh, Marco Castiello, and it's a true story about two Russian Secret Service agents um, who defected to the US and you know their experience of becoming Americans. It's not a spy thriller, or a thriller at all, really. It features spies, it features spy work, but it's really about the people and how they got themselves into the position of being Soviet agents and then Russian agents in the first place, and what made them want to get out, and how they were received by the Americans. It's a wonderful true story, and I'm so happy it came to comics. It's out from Aftershock. Issues one and two are still available and out. Now, and finally, and very differently, you ever had one really bad day? That's the story of Chicken Devil. We start with a guy who owns a chain of chicken restaurants who thinks his biggest problem that day is going to be who takes the kids to school and the fact that one of his deep fat fries caught fire the night before. And then things go spectacularly wrong. I'm not going to tell you how, uh, it involves organised crime and murder and exploding ships. And honestly, this thing goes from naught to 100,000 miles an hour at the turn of a page. But all the time, you've got the story of a guy who is just trying to get his life back under control after everything just got out of his grip. It's by a creative team who... I don't think I've ever come across any of their work before. This is the first thing of theirs that I've seen. It's a really out there idea for a crime story, for a crime thriller, I guess. And it's it's just wonderful. Out now from Aftershock. Issue one came out last week as I'm recording this. Uh, issue two is out in November. And I commend it to you. It's utterly, utterly brilliant. OK, that's it. We are done for this week. Thank you for your kind attention. I am sorry it's been so scrappy and so rushed. Uh, I haven't had time to engineer this properly, so there are still quite a lot of intakes of breath and stuff I haven't taken out. Next week's will be better. After that, hopefully we should return to normal. We will see you next week when I talk to the wonderful Chloe Green. Until then, be kind to yourselves, be kind to everybody else, until we meet together once again to go geeking. You take care, folks. I really do mean it. Look after yourselves.